just had a somewhat uh, mischievous impulse arise to do a silent talk. See if I could do it that way. You hear these stories in the past, there's someone just sitting there. But uh, it passed. <laughs> I noted it. So what I'd like to do this evening is to um, offer some reflections that maybe give a, a broader context to what we've been doing. So sometimes it can feel a little bit esoteric, sitting and walking and being in this particular uh, environment, but to draw out some of the broader implications for our lives, to make some connections uh, with how we can explore this path of freedom um, as a way of being, really. So not as something that we might touch into on occasional periods on retreats or even um, you know, just a few moments within that retreat, but how it can be something that more and more uh, infuses our life. And uh, so I'd like to begin just with something from uh, Christina Feldman. Uh, and if you don't know, she's the, one of the co-founders of the uh, Guy House. She says, mindfulness is not only a technique or practice, but is concerned with the quality of wakeful presence and the willingness to learn that we bring to each moment in our lives. It is saturated with sensitivity and curiosity, with the willingness to make peace with all moments and all things, and the deep wish to be free wherever we are. So I mentioned a little bit the other day this sense of it not just being a technique, as in not just sort of something you can apply in a rather mechanical way. Here I am in this situation, I'm going to apply this technique, it's going to produce some kind of predictable result. I know exactly where I am now, I know where I want to be, and I'm doing this in a rather sort of mechanistic way. But more about, again, this which she describes as the quality of wakeful presence. It's a presence that really then can uh, infuse our whole lives. And not just when we're sitting and walking at Guy House, or not just when we're engaged in formal practice, but I mean, perhaps um, and most poignantly, or very poignantly, when we're with others, that quality of wakeful presence we can give to other people, to our, our friends and family, the people around us, And I certainly know from my own experience how delightful, how lovely, how nourishing it is to really receive that quality of wakeful presence, to be heard, to be really met. It's, yeah, it's quite a gift, really. And uh, some people in the group today were beginning to you know, have some thoughts or anticipations or perhaps some anxieties about what it would be like to uh, leave the retreat and what's beyond that. And I think part of that can be a feeling of, uh, you know, the, the sensitivity and the presence and the, uh, the real deep listening in a way that we are giving to our own experience can sometimes be a little, you know, a sort of frustration or a jarring feeling if when we, we may notice more and more how distracted many people around us are. And, and the pain that that can feel. We really, really want to be heard. And that can be there. So this quality of wakeful presence. 
And she also says the willingness to learn that we bring to each moment in our lives. So again, this is a, a theme I think we've explored and touched upon, but it's such a different um, kind of attitude to bring to experience, isn't it? From uh, this is the experience I want to make me feel good. Or, you know, this is the experience I want to hold on to, or this is the experience I deserve. But this attitude of what can I learn from this experience, uh, I think is a, is a very helpful thing to do. So again, as we've been exploring today in some of the groups, we that can really change our attitude towards things that feel difficult, that come up in our meditation, come up in our practice. And rather than seeing them as obstacles or things that are in the way, things that are stopping me enjoying my retreat, but we think, well, what is there to learn from this? What is this situation teaching me? What is it teaching me about letting go, about connecting, about engaging with our experience with a sense of warmth? And in that way, every experience is something we can bring this quality of wakeful presence to. Every experience is something we can explore and seeing if we can learn from. Saturated with sensitivity and curiosity. Hmm. Well, this word saturated, it actually some of the descriptions in the uh, Buddhist scriptures of, of certain kind of states of deep calm use similar language, this feeling of being sort of pervaded by, soaked in, and completely uh, you know, sort of surrounding all things, saturated with sensitivity, curiosity. And I think too, as many of us have noticed today, that sensitivity uh, you know, brings different things to it, doesn't it? The sensitivity to the lovely, to the beautiful. And people talking about really um, being nourished by this place and the, the beauty of that, of what's around. And also sometimes the, the, the rawness and the, the vulnerability that that sensitivity can bring to. And again, as we were reflecting today, it's not that this practice is going to, and it's certainly not desirable that it would turn us into just a piece of wood that doesn't feel anything. <laughs> and sometimes notice that, that sort of idea around, you know, if I do enough of this practice, I'm just this inert thing, I'm just there, and life is going on, but I'm just whew, equanimous, like equanimity was this big, huge shield, just, and there's a, the world there, and I'm just sort of, invulnerable. But it doesn't seem to be like that, does it? It's the sensitivity. We feel things more and more. Feel things deeply. And so their freedom, as she talks about there, a deep wish to be free wherever we are, making peace with all moments and all things, is a, a freedom within that sensitivity, within that place of being touched, deeply touched. So then, again, exploring this way that this uh, practice we're engaged in becomes you know, more than a technique or a particular method that we apply, but uh, a way of being. Um, 
One of the things that I think is very helpful to explore is the way that certain views and ideas and beliefs can inform how we live, how we perceive the world, how we act, how we speak. And so paying some attention to the views, the beliefs, the assumptions that are around in our life is very, very important. So again, if we think about this using an example, if uh, we have the belief that what's going to make life really okay for me, what's going to really deliver a sense of well-being is a particular position in society or a particular amount of money or a portfolio of property or um, being seen in a particular way, whatever it is. If we have this belief, and it's interesting to, to notice and explore what, what kind of things are around for us. What is the belief that make, that, that's behind the sense, if I had X, Y, Z, or if this was in place, if I was seen in this way, became this kind of person, then there would be this sense of ease and well-being that can be around this belief, these assumptions. And so, yeah, if I just use one of those examples, if it was a, a certain position in society, if, I'm re- if that's really in, in me, that that's, that's what is going to really deliver for me, that's what's going to do it for me, to have some particular status, some particular position. Then, of course, what follows from that is that we pursue that. Yeah. So whatever we see, whatever we, we are viewing that way, is going to lead to particular motivations, particular ways of being, particular goals and aspirations. And there's this rather tragic image I've heard sometimes of people who spend all of their life climbing the ladder, only to realize it's up against the wrong wall. Yeah, so again, it's a sense of, well, <laughs> which wall do we want to put our ladder on? You could say. So again, just some, of, some explorations around beliefs, assumptions, um, around, I think, what it is to be a human being, how we relate to each other, uh, the nature of our behavior, ethical behavior towards each other, which I'd like to explore a little more. Um, given the sense of just how important that is, if we see how they're shaping, how we see the world, how we live, what our priorities are. One view that can sometimes be around um, and I would suggest we can feel a certain pain in this view, if it is around and operating, is a sense that human beings are essentially self-interested. So we're all isolated beings. I'm over here. You're over there. We're in our own little bubble, our own little world. I've got what I want. You've got what you want. And when we begin to see things in this way, as we meet each other, as we um, relate to each other, you know, the best we can perhaps do is come up with a few bargains, make a few deals. But there's always a sense of, well, you know, just keeping my eye on you. <laughs> um, so any kind of sort of agreements or a sense of morality based on that kind of assumption that we really are, ourselves are very separate, our interests are very separate, um, that there's a sort of pain and a, a somewhat lack of trust built in there. And there, there can be underlying it a sense of... Um, yeah, sort of untrustworthy sense. I think I'm remembering something my dad said to me once, which uh, 
uh, is interesting in this respect, but that in certain cultures there's some idea that if we've, if we've got an agreement, we don't need to write it down. If we need to write it down, it means that there's no agreement, there's no trust there. This is interesting. To see that, again, a certain sense of, a certain assumptions that are built around making deals, being separate, being isolated, that can be painful. Another assumption that can be around is that we um, have these, there's a sort of eternal conflict in our life between what we want, what would be really lovely, and what we should do. I don't know if you've ever got into that way of seeing yourself or seeing uh, an ethical life, but there are all these things that I'd like to do. If I did X, Y, Z, it'd be really happy, it'd be really fun, really good, get everything I want, but I shouldn't do those things. Those things are somehow bad, forbidden, whatever. And when we experience our life in that way, it's like we're constantly torn between um, these two things. It says, of what I might want to do that feels exciting, lovely, delicious for me, and what I should do, this sense of duty. And uh, for those of you who know your Freudian psychology, you know, from that level, it would be a bit like there's a, a constant battle between the id on the one hand. You know, I want this, I want that, I'm after this. And the superego on the other hand is idealistic senses of how we should be, how we're supposed to be, what a good boy is, a good girl is. And again, we can sometimes experience ourselves, there's this assumption that our lives are like this, that there's this kind of division between what I want and what I should do, between what will make me happy and between you know, what, what is my duty. There's a split and a division. So I think that sometimes when we see things this way and then somebody starts talking about ethics, you think, well, hang on, I'm not sure about that. Because again, it can be heard with the same thing of, well, here's a set of uh, duties, obligations, uh, things that I need to shape up to that might be quite different from my sense of what will be fulfilling for me. So, in terms of just sort of exploring and exposing some of these, these assumptions that can be around, I think it's also helpful to reflect upon um, the way that uh, ethics, the way that a life of uh, integrity is understood uh, within the Buddhist tradition, which I personally find very, very helpful in seeing through these particular ways of seeing ourselves as divided between desire and duty, or being locked into a very self-interested perspective. And so I'd like to reflect a little bit on the teachings on karma. Um, Now, karma, forgive my pronunciation, if you, if you say it really correctly, by the way, <laughs> there's a kind of rolling of the R, which I think is, is a, the right way to say it. But I'll, I'll say it, you know, standard way that we tend to say it these days, our karma. Um, we can see this um, sometimes as a rather speculative teaching. People hear this and think, well, what, you know, if you, I'm going to do something now, 20 years' time, something's going to come back to me. So, you know, I'm really sharp with somebody now. And in 20 years' time, somebody has a real go at me. Or uh, I cut somebody up in my car, and uh, sometime in the future, somebody lets my tires down. <laughs> you know, we can have this, this understanding of it, that it's like, you know, you do X, and this means that Y is going to happen in the future. And I think if you, if you see it in this way, 
um, not only does it feel a little bit confusing, but we just think, well, hang on, life just isn't like that. And we know, you know, this sense of this question that can be quite haunting, in fact, at times. You know, why do painful things happen to people who have you know, behaved in a good, kind, loving way? And the feeling of people who perhaps behave cruel, cruelly, harmed others, can appear to get away with it. And so this, this recognition, things working that way, can challenge this idea of this, well, what does this mean? This sort of actions have consequences in that way. So, one way that I certainly see it and I find very, very helpful is that when we are sensitive, when we're aware, when we're mindful, this quality of wakeful presence that we bring to each moment, we're able to directly perceive, we are able to directly perceive the pain in acting in certain ways. The pain in acting in certain ways. So when we speak or act from a sense of greed or a sense of really, you know, aversion, pushing away, if we're sensitive, we notice that what we're doing in those moments is solidifying a sense of being separate. A sense of being little me over here and all of these other people over there. Okay, so, you know, I've got one over on you. <laughs> so again, the, the, the one feeling is, yeah, I've, I've won. But at the same time, there's a separation there. The sense of being connected to other human beings, to being in a world with brothers and sisters who have hopes and fears and longings and dreams and difficulties and delights, just like me. That that perceptional, that way of being with others, that way of feeling connected, and not just to human beings, but to other beings, other sentient beings, and to the world as a whole. That connection which we are so healed by, we're losing in those actions that separate, that divide. And so we can see that there's a, there's a painfulness in those kind of actions. And then, you know, that's creating the conditions for that kind of pain, that kind of division to be there in the, in the future, in that way. So when we're sensitive to our actions, when we're sensitive to our and what's going on in our hearts and minds, we can see in a way that this separation between self and other softens. What's good for me? What's good for you? What's good for me? What's good for others? It doesn't seem quite so... Um, it's not like a battle. If I win, you've got to lose. If you win, I've got to lose. That kind of thing, just it sort of dissolves. And so therefore we can understand uh, an ethical life in that way is a life where we're cultivating certain qualities that are for the benefit of ourselves, for the benefit of others. And in many ways, this is what we've been doing on the retreat. That's what we've been doing here. So if we think about certain qualities that might have that um, sense, so the quality of kindness. I mean, again, you can just reflect, what's it like to be kind? And you're kind to others. A kind action, a kind word. That we're affirming our connection. When we're kind, again, you can notice this, but it begins to pull us out of a sort of self-centered preoccupation that is in its own way painful, isolating, separating. 
so we can feel the loveliness of kindness. It's not some sort of, I should duty, again, back to that. I should be kind and I've got to stop doing what I want to do because I'll need to be kind as the duty. No, it's, it's, it's a lovely quality that flowers. Or to be courageous. Again, to, in my understanding, to be courageous certainly doesn't mean not to have any fear. But it means to be with our fear, to, to acknowledge, to receive that, but not to be bound by it, not to be governed by it, not to be driven by it. Again, it's a blessing to ourselves, a blessing to others. When our lives are very governed by fear, it can be, again, there's more, more and more protection, more and more closing in, more and more shrinking to avoid in a certain situation, but as we open to that, can we be with that? And we're also more there for, for others in that too. I mean, the world really needs people with the courage to, to speak out in difficult situations, to say what others can't say, what might be too painful, too difficult to say. So our courage then is a, you know, is a gift to others too. And again, with patience, we can see that quality. What's it, imagine a life? I mean, just as a sort of thought experiment, um, what would it be to have no patience at all? I mean, life would be a bit really tough, <laughs> really tough. Even if you had, you're living in the lap of luxury, and you're living in the most wonderful sort of five-star hotel, and there's. You're in the Bahamas and there's, you know, palm trees and sea and everything you want and all this thing. But no patience. You'd be, it'd be a real struggle. Where's my food? I ordered it 30 seconds ago. Still not here. <laughs> you can see a, a life with no patience. Again, it doesn't matter what sort of sensual material wealth is around. It's just, it's painful. And also, too, then how patience is a blessing to others. to be patient with our loved ones when they're having a hard time, having a tough time, to be patient with them when, yeah, they're maybe not expressing themselves in, in, in a way that benefits us most, or it might be quite difficult to be with. Somebody's having a hard time, they're not necessarily saying in a very equanimous way, I am having a hard time. <laughs> You know, sometimes a bit more raw than that, isn't it? But the patient, okay, can I receive that energy too? Can I be with that? Can I open to that without just thinking, oh, I can't bear this, I'm clearing it off. The patience, again, is a, a lovely quality we can offer to others. And so too, our, our generosity. I have a little story about generosity I've told a few times, but it... It does stick in my mind, which is when I was, I was in Nottingham, and, uh, which is where I live, and walking down the street, and I can't even remember, I couldn't tell you now what I was thinking of, but it was one of the things that I'm making, again, the assumption that you're familiar with, a little pattern of thought going round and round in my own little world, perhaps you've experienced them these last few days. Anyway, this sort of thing was going round my head, and uh, I saw a woman coming out of the, the laundry, 
with a couple of really heavy bags of shopping and I just stopped and looked at her and, and I said, would you like some help? And uh, she looked at me and said, uh, no, it's okay, I'm fine. <laughs> so that was it. This is the extent of that interaction. There's no more sort of complicated story around that. So I just walked on. But what I noticed, and I really noticed it very strongly, I, my whole mood was completely different. It was completely different. Just that moment of, you know, all this going on, why did they say this to you, all that stuff. Would you like some help? It was like, it just took me out of that. And that act of generosity, again, you can see how, how freeing it is. Reflecting on this theme of a path of freedom, how freeing it is to live in that way. So, I hope, um, again, you can feel that, that this is what we've been doing on the retreat. So again, as I was saying at the beginning of the talk, connecting these somewhat, what can seem somewhat abstract exercises to feel the feet on the floor, to feel the breath in the body, to feel the feet on the ground, to notice thoughts coming and going. That you can see in the course of doing that, we're also practicing these, these qualities. Yeah, the kindness that we bring even to the, the harsh thoughts, the judgmental thoughts. Okay, we meet those with kindness as we were exploring today. The courage to stay in the sitting when it feels difficult. Hang on, where's this going? Something here that really feels hard to bear. And the courage to be with that. Okay, this is, you know, where's, where's my edge here? Just exploring that, breathing into it. Patience again too, that we practice here. The patience to be with what's difficult, or even what just feels a bit boring. <laughs> um, we live in a very stimulated culture, don't we? We all the yeah, we're not only we, you know, I'm sure there's many of you too. When you, when I was growing up. I can't remember. I think we I started off with three channels, then we went to four. I don't know how many I've got now. <laughs> 70 or something, uh, all of these things. Then you've got the internet, all of these. So you can you constantly, it's very, a culture that in a way we're not tolerating boredom very much because as soon as it arises, there's 70 things immediately to choose from to relieve the boredom before you go onto the countless websites or whatever. Yeah. And so here this is a bit, you know, at times a bit boring. <laughs> here I am with the breath coming and going, carpet that's rather plain, walls that are rather plain, you know, not a lot going on. But again, the patience to be with that, the sensitivity, can that bring something to, to that experience without needing to reach out and absorb into something exciting, different, new, but exploring that peace. We're developing patience. We're noticing a deeper sense of joy, of calm, of peace that's not so dependent on doing something exciting, interesting, absorbing, stimulating. So again, just uh, reflecting on this. And so, this way of being we're talking about, the path of freedom as a way of being, to seeing how our assumptions about 
being separate, isolated, self-interested, we might want to question, examine, dissolve some of those in the practice. Reflecting on these lovely qualities and what it means to live with a sense of ethics, sila samadhi panya is how we describe the path in many ways, ethics, meditation, wisdom, for this ethical life is very much part of that, but not seeing that as duties, demands, obligations that are against my self-interest against my against my needs but something that really contributes to our flourishing what is it to flourish as a human being these qualities that help us to do that another thing that helps and that we are um, exploring on retreat is seeing through some other sort of strategies or seeing through some ways of habits or ways of behaving that can keep us feeling imprisoned or, or somewhat stuck. And one of these I wanted to mention and explore is a sense of being very pulled into um, sense experiences, being dependent on sense experience for a feeling of being okay. okay? So, again, just to, to think about that a little bit more uh, and what that might mean. Certainly... Um, nothing in this teaching, in my understanding, that is somehow sort of anti-enjoying or appreciating something. Let's say you were having a, a lovely meal sometime or something, and you're really, you're there, you're present, and the tastes are there, the pleasant tastes and things. It's not saying, ah, oh, you know, this is sensual. Don't be such a sensual creature. <laughs> and a big sort of, I don't know what the word would be. Well, I'll say the word that was in my head. I have a feeling it's a little unfair to them, but a sort of Puritan stick that comes down. It may be that we're a little unfair on the Puritans, but I'll leave that for another time. But this feeling of somehow pleasure is bad. You know, no, don't have pleasure. Just duty, goodness, something like that. It's this thing. So I don't really understand it like that. But I think what it's pointing to is how we can become a prisoner of sense pleasure or feeling that we need certain things and that we then really feel lost or absent without them. Um, so again, it may be one of the things you've noticed on retreats, finding yourself craving, wanting particular sense pleasures um, and just noticing how that pull takes you away from a more basic sense of okayness, a more basic sense of just resting, abiding, and being here. Yeah. I've had this with some really odd things. I don't know if you had. Maybe one day we should do a sort of, what's the strangest sense pleasure you've thought about on retreat? But for me, it was quite often been these hula hoop crisps. <laughs> you might think it should be something more sophisticated. I remember Martin Bachelor talking about a particular kind of olive, and I thought, oh, it's a rather refined taste. But for me, it might this is sort of London stroke Nottingham boys. Hula hoops. <laughs> oh, it's quite funny, really. We really had those on times looking for, you know, when I'm going to have some crisps. <laughs> and you can, you can see how you, get, how you get pulled into that. And, I mean, it's, it's lovely, and perhaps with something like hula hoops, even more, this sort of absurdity of it is even more obvious. You know, is, it, is that really going to do it for me? Is it really going to do it for me? The sort of salty, 
or slightly greasy. Yeah. Well, this desire starting to arise for me now. <laughs> Same. But it's sort of there. So, you know, it's like, it's there. But, but we can see what's it like. And you have one or two of them. And then, again, good to be sensitive. It's the condition, the, the wish to have a few more. And you have a few more. And it's like that. So the thing I would say really is that, again, notice how sense desire can, we can become a sort of hostage to it. We can become a sort of hostage to it. And in some ways, this is when um, the more luxury we're used to in life, again, can become another kind of trap or something a little bit imprisoning. So the very, uh, again, questioning is an assumption about what brings freedom and what brings imprisonment. If we're very habituated to luxury, and we've got rather pinned on that, we feel that our well-being is dependent on that. Uh, then again, we're more likely to struggle, suffer when that's absent. I remember seeing a, a program on TV, one of these uh, things, I don't know if you ever watched this, something like A Place in the Sun or something like that, and somebody was being shown around this amazing villa in Spain, a really lovely place, and a big sort of detached place, and wonderful views, and the swimming pool, and things like that. But she, I don't know, I think perhaps she's very used to, to living a certain life, but she was in this state of mind. It was quite, quite fascinating, really, to watch. And she's like, couldn't possibly live here. How, how could I live here? You know, with this sort of pokey area around the swimming pool. You know, probably about half the size of this room. <laughs> but it you know, wasn't, wasn't big enough for the sort of parties she'd want to have. And, you know, this is totally unacceptable, and I really couldn't bear this. I'd have to find something else. So you, you can see how sense pleasure, or in, you know, the wealth, which sometimes wealth can mean all kinds of things to us, but sometimes it can mean access to sense pleasure, can become a kind of trap. So a place where somebody else might just think, oh, this is nice, can be here. The other, another kind of area that I think we begin to see through, so we can begin to see through the um, what's the word? I don't know the right word for it, really? But the how it doesn't necessarily help to try to build a sense of well-being around collecting a series of sense pleasures that that might make us pinned onto those rather than truly free. Um, another one of these things that I feel we can do is. Um, becoming uh, attached to or grasping after a particular kind of identity or being a particular kind of person. That's also quite interesting. There's not always sense pleasures that drive us, but sometimes this wish for, we might see it in terms of a wish for status or achievement or success or to be somebody. So to try to defend a particular kind of identity. And this is what life is about. If I can be this kind of person, then things will be okay. And so much, there's a lot of energy that can go into that. To wanting to be I don't know, successful, seem to be successful, and to sort of hold on and cling to that. Again, speaking uh, personally for, for a while, I can certainly see that in uh, relationship to, to Dharma teaching. And I was very... Um, you know, drawn and fascinated to what Kirsten was saying yesterday about this uh, sense of being in these these different modes and being you know with a family and then being here. Um, and I've certainly found that 
a much healthier place to be with this. And one of the other teachers said, I always remember it, she said, you know, teaching is something I pick up and put down. Pick up and put down. It's not something that I carry around with me, she said, as an identity. And that's really helpful. I mean, just in this particular, this particular identity of Dharma teacher, that to cling to it and feel I need to hold on to it, whenever I do that, it actually becomes somewhat painful. Yeah? It becomes, because there's some sort of image that I need to defend. So if I'm, I'm clinging that, and then I come in to talk to you this evening, I think, well, what, what, what if I have nothing to say? <laughs> what if it all goes wrong? What if I spill the water all over my leg? Sort of me. But the more I'm attached to it, I've got to be this, and I've got to get it right. You know, and of course these things come up, and in you know, relation to Dharma teaching, then sort of thing for me is, oh, maybe I need to write a book now. I've been doing this a few years. That's the next stage. You know? And it's not, of course, you know, maybe that, that would be a lovely and a wholesome thing to do. I'm sort of anti-writing a book. But just noticing for me, there's, well, where would that be coming from? Is that because I need to feel I'm building this identity, I'm building this structure, I'm building something? Or is it coming, you know, perhaps just from a wish to share or a wish to, another way to communicate, another way to teach? But I just notice in my own experience, whenever there's that clinging, to it. There's a painful feeling to that. What's it like to cling to trying to be a particular kind of person, to being seen in a particular way? Again, it, it makes us a hostage. This is the thing. A bit like, so I was saying about the sense pleasures and the, and the wealth in a way, that they, they can make us a sort of hostage in that way. And that identity that we might cling to, what happens when that dissolves? What happens when that disappears? So perhaps putting together a couple of the different stories. I remember an early time, I think, when I was doing the Dharma teaching and having told you about my hula hoop desires. <laughs> I think it was uh, perhaps sometime I just finished a retreat or after a retreat and uh, I think I was eating some chips. <laughs> and then the thought came, what if one of the yogis sees me eating chips? <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's your whole faith in mindfulness, Buddhism, meditation, it's going to be, oh, you know. And it's interesting, I thought, you know, have we been sitting here all week saying, don't eat chips, chips are bad, chips are not, but, but there can be this whole image, you know. And, and I, it, it really is that these sort of images or self-images are something that can be created. And so this is a situation where Jake, the Dharma teacher, begins to manifest. But lots of situations, it wouldn't be like that. So Jake, the husband, or Jake, the brother, or the son, or the co-worker in a college, or the neighbor, or whatever, it's, it can be quite different. And quite different. And this, again, is an, another manifestation of this teaching of not-self, not trying to cling or hold on to a particular role as if it's somehow our essence. Mm. 
So these ways of seeing that I've been reflecting on, these ways of seeing that are, can help this way of being that we're calling the path of freedom. The, the ways of seeing and understanding the world then naturally unfold in certain motivations, certain intentions, certain ways of acting. And these, again, to echo an earlier point, these are not things that we should do. These are not things that we're obliged to do. It's our duty. But these are things that begin to make sense when we are seeing clearly. We think about, say, the motivations of, of loving kindness. I mean, I, you know, I think, and I'm certainly not claiming to remember this every moment of the day, <laughs> but I certainly feel that Loving-kindness, motivations of loving-kindness are simply motivations that make sense. When we see that motiva- you know, being motivated by separation, greed, cruelty, defensiveness, hostility, when we see the painfulness of that, it's not, oh, I shouldn't do it, but it's, it just doesn't make any sense. When we reflect on and this, again, I... I really love this reflection uh, that I'm coming back to again and again, really. Um, very often the, the Dalai Lama says this, uh, that you know, all beings wish to be happy, all beings wish not to suffer. It's a very, very wholesome and skillful way to see each other. So rather than being too fixed on, you know, this person is a particular age or a particular gender or a particular uh, background, particular ethnic background, or a particular political ideology, or a particular whatever it is, and all the, the ways in which we could fix people in different ways. This is a person who wishes to be happy and wishes not to suffer. Again, as I've been expanding that a little, a person with hopes and dreams, things that they're fearful of, things that they delight in, people who love them. When we begin to see others in that way, Again, the motivations of loving kindness, just, it's just what makes sense. It's just what makes sense. And again, the motivation to, to let go. And Kirsten was talking yesterday about... Uh, Renunciation, and uh, sometimes some of us sweeten the word renunciation a little bit, which, uh, as she was uh, pointing out, can bring up some idea of sort of deprivation or being separated from something. But we, we sweeten it and we call it letting go. <laughs> and that's really, in a way, what this means. But this motivation of, of renunciation, of letting go, again, is one that isn't a duty, an obligation, something we should do, but something that makes sense. Um, if we think, again, an example we may have of that is um, of a child who makes uh, sandcastles at the beach and then begins to become upset when the tide comes in and washes away the sandcastles. And then as adults we can say, ah, oh, you know, we kind of saw the whole process, didn't we? We, we knew that as soon as you built the sandcastle on the beach. we. We don't always recognize impermanence, but most of us, <laughs> on that level, yeah, we can see it, it's clear. 
So as we grow up, we perhaps, or whether we lose interest in sandcastles is another thing, but we may lose a sense that, that we're going to really try and hold on to that. We just know it just doesn't make any sense to do that. Because it's built out of sand, the tide's going to come in and it will go. And so too, renunciation is, is certainly like that, this letting go. It's not pushing away anything that would, you know, something that would make us really happy but we shouldn't have. But we're just putting it down, we're simplifying. And in that putting down, in that simplifying, we're discovering and deepening in this, this basic sense. I like this phrase, a basic sense of okayness, a basic sense of well-being that we can begin to feel pervades all of our experience. Yeah. All of our experience, even in the midst of difficulty, it's still somehow there holding things. that we can touch into something we can trust and becomes a kind of refuge. And this uh, ability to make peace with all moments and all things. So let's uh, sit quietly together just for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.